Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Biden administration today working to reinstate DACA, giving protected status to people who entered the U.S. illegally as children. Immigration experts gather in D.C. to discuss this and more. Border state Arizona is under fire over a new voting law. The Department of Justice is suing the state for planning to ask voters to prove that they're citizens. Monmouth University releases their latest poll on the nation's top concerns. How many Americans said the country is headed in the right direction? In the last two weeks, the Biden administration has assured women that federal regulations can protect their access to abortions, even in states with strict laws. But can a federal agency force states to comply? An explosion destroyed large portions of the controversial Guidestones in Georgia. Authorities are investigating who did it and why. At Wimbledon today, the men's all-time leader in Grand Slam titles was hampered by an abdominal injury. We'll tell you how Rafael Nadal prevailed after falling behind two sets to one. Today, an Obama-era U.S. immigration policy is being examined in federal court. The legality of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA, is in question. The Biden administration is trying to resume the policy after a Texas federal court de declared it illegal, which prevented new applicants from joining the program. Here's NTD's Melina Wisecup with more. Today, the fate of DACA is in question as the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans hears arguments. The program prevents deportation of more than 600,000 illegal immigrants, many of whom are now adults but arrived in the U.S. as children or teenagers. The Justice Department is defending the program after a Texas judge ruled that the way it began was illegal. It's, it's hard to argue that DACA is anything but illegal. I mean, they, they, they tried to create a an immigration amnesty program out of whole cloth when Congress wouldn't vote for it. In fact, Congress repeatedly failed to pass the DREAM Act, which is the legislation that's like that DACA was modeled on. And so uh, the Obama administration just decided, now we're just gonna do it ourselves. And that's not the way any of this works. Texas and eight other states in the suit go further, arguing that they are harmed financially by allowing immigrants to remain in the country illegally. Mark Krikorian, the executive director for immigration studies, tells us that there is a place for a program like DACA to protect the most vulnerable, but there must be enforcements. A limited, narrow version that dealt with the truly most sympathetic, compelling cases and that was balanced with enforcement measures to try to limit the likelihood of future people being in this situation. For now, the DACA program is still intact for illegal immigrants who are already benefiting from it. But the government cannot approve new applications while the program is being challenged in court. And for some states contending with an influx of border crossers, one issue that's come to the fore is voting rights. An Arizona law that would require proof of citizenship to vote in federal elections is being challenged in court. The law was recently enacted and is set to take effect in January next year. But the Justice Department on Tuesday announced it's suing the state. The DOJ says requiring proof of citizenship to vote is unlawful and unnecessary. Here to offer his analysis is Tom Jones, a founder of the government watchdog American Accountability Foundation. 
Tom Jones, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on. The Department of Justice is seeking to block an Arizona law that would require voters to present proof of citizenship in order to vote in federal elections. Now, their reasoning is that they say it violates the National Voter Registration Act and the Civil Rights Act. Could you explain their legal reasoning and their argument and whether you think it's valid? Yeah, it's really difficult to understand where where the DOJ is coming at with this because really the baseline should be to demonstrate that you're legally qualified to vote in the United States and and the entry level for that is being a United States citizen. That really shouldn't shouldn't be that complicated. And I think what this really shows is that DOJ is not interested in in fair elections in Arizona. And what they're interested in is putting their thumb on the scale for Democratic politicians, making it easier for unqualified voters to vote in elections in Arizona. But the DOJ says that this law would block eligible voters. How does that work? Yeah, I, I don't think it would. Um, it's, you know, I'm 49 years old. I've had to demonstrate my proof of citizenship multiple times, whether it's getting a driver's license, getting a passport, any number of things. Um, this is not a hard bar to get over. Um, so I, I really don't see what the, the Department of Justice is saying here. I think, again, what it gets down to is they want non-citizens to be able to vote. And they see that Arizona is a purple state where they have a really significant opportunity to pick up seats. And they want to, again, put their thumb on the scale for their team. Um, and that's just wrong. Now, your organization has raised the alarm, alleging that the Biden that the DOJ has become a political arm of the Biden yeah. administration. Could you speak to that a little? Sure. So what what's happened is there's been a concerted effort to bring in really aggressive Democratic activists into the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice is supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to call balls and strikes and administer equal justice for all. But what they've done instead is brought in people like Pamela Carlin and Emily Braley. Pamela Carlin was a never-Trumper who testified at the Trump impeachment. And Emily Braley, who's the lead attorney on this, on this lawsuit in Arizona, formerly worked for the Democratic Party of Texas. Um, this is not somebody who has impartial justice in mind. This is somebody who has an agenda. And that's what this, uh, this department's been doing since day one. And it's, it's disappointing, and Americans should be really troubled by it. Your organization has previously raised concerns about the DOJ's involvement in state elections. In particular, you pointed to the DOJ's trying to stop an election audit after the 2020 federal elections. Could you elaborate more on that? Sure, yeah. So Pamela Carlin, who came from Stanford University, again, this never-Trumper, one of the first things she did when she got to the Department of Justice was threaten the state of Arizona that if they did a door-to-door -door canvas of voters in Arizona to determine that people were eligible to vote, that this would be seen as voter intimidation and that they would bring the full weight of the Department of Justice down on Arizona. Um, the Department of Justice has no authority to do this. This is way beyond their mandate. Um, states are allowed to administer elections. In Arizona, in, in 2020, was doing exactly that, ensuring that their elections were conducted fairly and with integrity. Um, and, and instead, the Department of Justice came in over top and threatened them. And it's uh, really out of bounds for the U.S. DOJ. Now, ensuring free and fair elections is highly important to all voters. How do you think we can ensure people's trust in the system, protect the system, and ensure that all eligible voters can still vote? 
No, certainly. You know, everyone that's entitled to vote should be allowed to vote. And I, and I think that comes down to having people in office who take this seriously, who want to make sure the, the ballot box is open to everyone who's qualified, but ensure that that vote is not diluted by people who are not American citizens. Look, if you're not a U.S. citizen, you shouldn't be voting in federal elections. And and that's really kind of where that comes down to. You want somebody who's looking at that balance of, of openness to people who are qualified, but making sure that the standards are upheld and that those who are allowed to vote are, are the people that are voting. Tom Jones, founder of the American Accountability Foundation, thank you so much. And thanks so much for having me. President Biden travels to the bellwether state of Ohio to tout his economic plan. And today, the focus is on pension funds. And today's Iris Tao has more. Speaking to a group of union supporters in Ohio, President Biden trying to sell blue-collar workers on his economic agenda and what he says will save their pension checks. Motor employee plans will remain solvent for decades and come at least until guaranteed till 2051. These retirees, those retirees who lost their benefits, will have them restored retroactively. Biden on Wednesday rolled out a rule he said would allow millions of workers facing pension cuts due to investment losses to get all the benefits they were set to receive. The program was created under Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package from last year, and its launching comes as Biden's approval rating continues to suffer amid soaring inflation. Meanwhile, Ohio has been leaning strongly Republican, with Donald Trump carrying it twice in the last two elections. And this is Biden's sixth visit as president to the Buckeye State. And Biden sending his party's campaign message here, calling the GOP, the party that chose to make life more comfortable for the already comfortable. And that's why this election is going to be so darn important. The key is that we just have to remember who built this country. But Biden's Ohio visit also met with backlash. In a Wednesday statement, Ohio's Republican Senate nominee J.D. Vance called Biden's time in office, quote, a disaster for working class Ohioans, citing what he calls wasteful spending and an inflation crisis. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And more on Biden's performance, Monmouth University released their latest poll to find out the nation's top concerns for families. And almost half of Americans named either inflation or gas prices as their biggest concern. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Did you used to go to Starbucks every day, but now you're making coffee at home instead? Well, you might not be alone. According to Monmouth University's recent poll, the American family's top concern is inflation. Joseph Tresavani, who is a senior analyst at FXStreet.com, explained why this is a major issue for Americans. Inflation has been running now at more than 5% for almost a year, and we all go shopping. We all put gas in our cars. Most of us do not have electric cars. And at any rate, electric rates have gone way up also. So that is something which really starts to affect people's outlook and people's emotions. And he says a big concern about inflation is the decrease in consumer spending because the U.S. economy is dependent on it. Businesses can pass along costs to their consumers, their retailers, and end up with consumers. Government just taxes, so they don't really have to worry too much about spending money, and they float more debt. But for the consumer, most people do not have access to increasing their income 
simply because prices are going up. He mentioned that a lack of consumer spending could lead to a recession, and that's what the markets are positioning for now. Number two on the Monmouth Poll's list of family concerns were gas prices. If you look at the crude oil pricing, it's come off very sharply in the last few days. The reason is because energy markets are now pricing in a recession. Recession, as I said earlier, means less demand, less demand for all things, less demand for energy. Three weeks ago, oil was around 120. It's now well below 100. So that will, of course, bring down gasoline prices. Also in the poll, 42% of Americans say they are struggling to remain where they are financially, and only 10% say the country is going in the right direction. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now to another hot issue, abortion. Hours after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the Biden administration pledged to make abortion more accessible to women in states with stricter laws. The question is, how? NTD's Arlene Richards explores the options. This is a health care crisis. In recent days, several states have activated laws to limit or ban abortions, including access to the abortion pill. But the Biden administration is determined to make abortion accessible to all women. I will do all of my power to protect a woman's right in states where they will face the consequences of today's decision. His administration says there are federal laws that give women access to abortion medications. My administration will also protect a woman's access to medications that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Federal law requires our programs to provide medication abortion in certain circumstances. But political analyst Jeffrey Tucker doesn't think the FDA can force states to change their laws. In your opinion, could the FDA have the authority to prevent states from banning the abortion pill? An agency on its own can't just uh, override uh, state, state laws. But Attorney General Merrick Garland said he plans to work with the FDA to get women access to the FDA-approved abortion medication, Mifepristone. The agency is authorized to enforce federal laws, including those related to drug safety, food safety, medical device safety, cosmetics, and other medical products. But it's not clear whether it can force states to give women access to abortion medications. However, Garland is confident he can defend the FDA's authority to do just that. In a statement, he said states may not ban mifepristone based on disagreement with the FDA's expert judgment about its safety and efficacy. Tucker says the Supreme Court would strictly apply traditional constitutional principles to assess the FDA's authority. He noted the court's recent ruling against the EPA, where the court said the agency had acted beyond its authority. The framers set up a, a structure so that you had an executive to carry out the laws, Congress to, to make the laws, and to uh, have the Supreme Court there to police uh, the system to make sure that everything complied with the Constitution. And now this should apply also to the FDA. The Biden administration notes other federal laws that protect a woman's right to travel to states where abortion is legal. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And in Georgia, an explosion early this morning destroyed parts of the Guidestones. The Guidestones is a monument with 10 guidelines on population and humanity written in eight languages. Local authorities say unknown actors detonated an explosive device around 4 a.m. this morning. One of the pillars of the monument was completely destroyed, and the top block was also partly damaged. 
Authorities are investigating the incident, and all of the pillars were torn down by afternoon. The origins of the Guidestones are ambiguous. An unknown person or group under the name R.C. Christian allegedly commissioned it in 1980. Part of the inscription on the stones reads, quote, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. The monument is a tourist attraction but has faced backlash and vandalism due to the messages on the stones. And turning now to the Highland Park, Illinois shooting. 21-year-old suspect Robert Cremo appeared in court for the first time earlier today. He could face life in prison for seven counts of first-degree murder. Prosecutors say they plan to file more charges. Cremo joined a court hearing virtually from jail where he is held without bond. Authorities say Cremo confessed to carrying out the attack. He also admitted that he drove to Madison, Wisconsin after the shooting and contemplated another shooting at a different holiday event. He later gave up the idea because he wasn't prepared enough and drove back to Illinois. According to police, Cremo's father sponsored his state firearm owner's ID in 2019 when the suspect was 19 years old. This is despite two police encounters with Cremo earlier that year. In one instance, Cremo tried to commit suicide. In the other, he threatened to kill his family members. If convicted, Cremo could face life in prison with no possibility of parole. The Lake County Coroner's Office has identified six of the seven victims. They range from 35 to 88 years old. Coming up, some crude oil released from the emergency reserve reportedly went overseas instead of staying here in the U.S. The release was supposed to help lower gas prices. And the Biden administration could remove tariffs on China as early as this week. Will it lower prices for Americans? Stay tuned for more after this short break. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. The White House has taken some measures to try to bring down inflation. One of them is releasing oil from our emergency reserves in order to lower gas prices. But it appears that some of that oil has gone overseas instead of staying in the country and being refined here. Reuters reports more than 5 million barrels of that released oil was exported to Europe and Asia last month. That's according to customs data and sources. Philip 66, the fourth-largest U.S. oil refiner, shipped about 470,000 barrels to Italy. More cargoes also headed to the Netherlands, India, and China. Some analysts say the oil release hasn't had a real effect on gas prices. Meanwhile, it's draining the emergency oil reserve, which last month fell to the lowest in 36 years. And in an effort to fight inflation, President Biden could soon roll back some of former President Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods. A decision could reportedly come as soon as this week. That's according to Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. 
Amid high inflation, the White House says President Biden's team is looking at options on China tariffs. But Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre Tuesday said she didn't have a timeline for the decision. The president's team is continuing to look at our options uh, on how to move forward. Uh, as you know, for the president and President Xi had a conversation back in March, and we continue to leave all communications lines open from the president on down. President Biden's been looking for ways to combat inflation, meeting with senior advisors over the past several weeks to come up with a solution. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called for eliminating tariffs on household goods from China to reduce U.S. inflation. But that still wouldn't help with prices for food, fuel and housing, where inflation hurts the most. According to Bloomberg, Barclays Bank said rolling back tariffs on Chinese goods wouldn't do much, calling it a drop in the bucket for lowering U.S. prices. Another consideration is China's unfair trade practices, partly why Trump imposed the tariffs in the first place. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai wants to keep the tariffs for leverage. The Biden administration is trying to strike a balance between easing price pressures and keeping the pressure on China. Some Democrats and organized labor unions are also pushing Biden to keep the tariffs in place to protect U.S. jobs. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. More than 400 requests have been submitted to the Biden administration to keep tariffs on China in place. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about the tariffs as an expert from the Hudson Institute. Riley Walters, thanks for coming on. So the Biden administration is thinking of uh, removing China tariffs to try to fight inflation. Now, these tariffs are on Chinese products like, you know, aluminum, steel, furniture, microchips. They're not really on food or gas, price, uh, gas where uh, Americans are feeling uh, inflation the most. Now, will removing the tariffs have that much an effect? It really won't have that much of a meaningful effect. Uh, you know, we have tariffs on almost 400 billion worth of uh, goods coming from China, and the Biden administration, from reports, you know, they're thinking of removing tariffs on less than one percent of that. Uh, so, you know, it really wouldn't have that much of a meaningful impact. Maybe bicycles can become a little bit cheaper, but as you said, you know, we, we don't really import a lot of food. Uh, we don't really import import a lot of uh, fuel from China either, and so. Uh, I don't really think it would have a meaningful impact where, uh, you know, a lot of American families are feeling it right now. Do you think we should keep the tariffs or remove them? Personally, I think we should remove them. Uh, I think we should remove them in full, though, uh, and really invest our efforts elsewhere, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, enforcing our export controls and, and sanctioning individuals when it comes to illicit activity like intellectual property theft. I, I don't really find that the tariffs have had any meaningful impact uh, on a number of things, whether it's moving production out of China, whether it's uh, making China live up to this, this uh, trade deal that we signed a few years ago. And so I don't really see them having actual any impact besides maybe those that are political. So maybe that's why Washington wants to keep them. Uh, but besides that, you know, economically speaking, they really haven't been um, uh, beneficial, I don't think, to the United States. Now, China's uh, unfair trade practices, uh, they're a real big concern. If we remove the tariffs, would that get worse? Not necessarily. Um, you know, one of the arguments for the trade, for the tariffs was to stop China's uh, theft of American intellectual property. 
you know, we haven't really seen uh, really a marked decrease in, in, in this. We haven't really seen, um, you know, these tariffs pay for the theft that China has been committing over the years. And so, you know, you can really make the argument the tariffs really haven't done anything in that regard. So why should we be keeping them in, in the meantime, I mean, some experts say that, you know, if we remove these tariffs, we could see a, a decrease of one to two percent of inflation for American families. And that would be significant. Um, but, you know, it's it's really uh, I don't really think we should be keeping these tariffs if they're not really doing anything to begin with. Now, one to two percent, that is if Biden removes a broad range of tariffs. Now, right. reports are saying he's not really thinking about that. Right. Right. So, you know, the reports that they might remove, you know, uh, again, less than one percent of the tariffs, uh, it, it's really it really isn't meaningful. It, it, you're really not changing much. You're not helping inflation. Uh, you're really helping, uh, you know, build this argument that maybe Biden is soft in some regards when it comes to China. It, it really seems like they're trying to appease everyone during this time. You know, it's this Washington mentality that we have to at least do something. But I think in this regard, uh, you know, they're really not doing anything. Now, besides the tariffs, what can be done about China's unfair trade practices? Well, you know, we can really, uh, you know, target those uh, entities and individuals that have abused the American system, that, uh, you know, have stolen our intellectual property. Uh, we have effective export controls uh, that we can place on China, which we have in the past when it comes to human rights violations. And, you know, to argue that export controls haven't been beneficial, I mean, look at what's happened with Russia. Russia's industrial production has basically shut down because the world has, has effectively uh, imposed uh, these uh, export controls. And so we could do similar things with China, uh, especially when it comes to their bad practices. Uh, but, you know, tariffs haven't been the effective way to do so. All right. Riley Walters, Deputy Director, Hudson Institute, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And staying with the economy, red states are doing better economically than blue states, according to multiple measures. According to Moody's analytics, they're attracting more people and adding more jobs. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Companies and people are flooding out of blue states and into red states, which are doing better economically, according to several key metrics. This has been a time of unprecedented mobility for companies. John Boyd is a site selection expert at the Boyd Company, which helps companies choose where to build their businesses. Boyd says... There's been a great migration of business, of jobs, and of wealth to lower tax states in the Sun Belt. The am amount of interest that our firm is getting from site-seeking companies and developers looking to do, to do new relocations or expansions, tend to be in, in pro-business states in the Sun Belt. You look at states like Texas and Florida and the Carolinas and Arizona and Nevada really being uh, big winners here. Boyd says his clients are looking for states that have their fiscal houses in order, are not engaged in endless cycles of borrowing, taxing and spending, have pro-business regulatory policies and enforce the law. An analysis shows that 46 million people moved in February, with Florida, Texas and North Carolina gaining the most, and California, New York and Illinois losing the most. This is a victory for common sense economics, that when you raise the price of living or working or having a business, 
business in one state and lowered in another, uh, all else being equal, we're going to see more people continue to leave. Jonathan Williams is the chief economist of the American Legislative Exchange Council. Williams says other reasons include more lockdowns, Trump's capping of the state and local tax deduction, and the ability to work remotely. Alan Fredrickson, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, is the Supreme Court extremist? President Biden's charge against the court goes under the microscope. We look at the history of its rulings and its intended purpose. And at Wimbledon today, the men's all-time leader in Grand Slam titles was hampered by an abdominal injury. NTD's Dave Martin details how Rafael Nadal prevailed after falling behind two sets to one. That and more coming up. In the wake of recent major and controversial decisions from the highest court in the land, President Biden is weighing in, on Sunday calling the court extremist. A constitutional scholar I spoke with earlier today, Rob Nadelson, however, says this court is neither conservative nor liberal. He joins us to discuss the history of the court, its intended purpose, and the recent charges made against it. Rob Nadelson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. President Biden over the weekend called the Supreme Court extremist. Now, you said in a recent op-ed for the Epoch Times that the Supreme Court is actually no longer conservative and it's no longer liberal. Could you explain what that means? Sure. We have not had a conservative activist on the court in the sense that we have three liberal activists on the court since 1941, when Justice uh, James McReynolds retired. What we have among the six justice majority are a collection of philosophies. There's originalism, there's respect for precedent, uh, there's what, what is sometimes called judicial minimalism, but there's no clear conservative thread. As for the charge that the court is being extremist, I think that's more an indication of where those people who are making those charges are coming from themselves, that they may be the extremists and th therefore they inaccurately perceive the court that way. And we could discuss that if you like. Yes. In your op-ed, you recently you pointed to a trend in um, the Supreme Court's decisions in previous terms, saying that they've overstepped their bounds in some ways of the traditional role of the Supreme Court justices. And you call it uh, liberal judicial activism. Could you yes. explain how that happened and what it means? Well, during the 20th century, roughly from about 1940 to 1990, a majority of the court consisted of people who had very liberal ideologies, and they tended to import those ideologies into the Constitution, whether the Constitution really stood for them or not. Um, that ended eventually uh, in part, but uh, until this term, the Supreme Court continued to apply many of the precedents that had been adopted by liberal courts during its most liberal era. It wasn't until this term that you saw a major liberal precedent be overturned, that is to say, Roe versus Wade, and the court began to really edge in a direction other than uh, or away from the jurisprudence that was created in this very liberal activist 
uh, time. I think a lot of the complaints about the court are not really because the court has been conservative. The complaints are from people who want the court to continue to be a liberal activist court. And if this trend does continue with this type of ruling, do you, what, how do you see that affecting the nation? Well, I think the big unanswered question is whether the court is willing to tackle a big unanswered question, and that is whether Congress has the power to do all the things that Congress purports to do. This term, the court issued a few decisions that curb the bureaucracy somewhat. So, for example, in the in the case of uh, West Virginia versus Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the court said that the Environmental Protection Agency can't go ahead and restructure the entire energy market of the United States without the approval of Congress. But a, but a, a more serious question is, does Congress really have the power to restructure the entire energy market of the country? or? Or does the Constitution's limits on federal power still hold? We'll see if future courts or future terms are willing to address that issue. And how does this discussion apply to the issues that people are discussing around recent contentious uh, rulings, such as Roe v. Wade? And yeah, well, Roe versus Wade is a good example. And I wrote on this issue for the Epic Times. Uh, the, the progressive left has a strong political interest in keeping the issue of abortion as a federal issue. If this issue is moved to the states for various reasons, that's a big loss for them. It, it works well for them as a federal issue. And so that's why you see the demonstrations, why you also see the uh, suggestion that Congress should intervene with its own regulation of abortion. Uh, I don't think that's going to prevail. I think it probably will move back to the states. And then people can, instead of slugging it out against each other in court, they can reason together in the state legislatures about what makes the most sense with respect to abortion policy. And what do you think can be done moving forward to reach a mutual understanding on the court's intended purpose and to protect that purpose? That's the role of constitutional education. And when you see the kind of outroar that you saw in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, it's an indication that our education system has failed to educate people about the Constitution and about the proper role of courts. And so that's one reason why I write a column for the Epic Times. It's one reason I'm engaged in constitutional education, because people need to know that there is that the rule of law requires it be a set of rules. You may not always agree with them. If you want to change them, you go to the legislature, but you don't blame the court for applying uh, the rules that it's supposed to apply. So that's the task of us educators, is to go before the American public and to um, uh, explain what the public schools apparently are not explaining, and that's the, the, the role of the rule of law and of the Constitution in our system. Constitutional scholar Rob Nadelson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. Now to a federal court case. The owner of a funeral home in Colorado is accused of illegally selling body parts and giving fake ashes to clients. Megan Hess pleaded guilty to mail fraud in federal court yesterday. Hess and her mother, Shirley Koch, operated the Sunset Mesa Funeral Home in Montrose, Colorado. 
The indictment says that between 2010 and 2018, Hess and Koch offered to cremate bodies and provide the ashes to families for $1,000 or more, but many of the cremations never happened. The funeral home would give their clients false remains. They then allegedly sold the bodies or body parts to third parties for research without the family's knowledge. According to the Department of Justice, this happened on dozens of occasions. Hess is likely to be tried in January next year. She could face up to 20 years in prison. And turning now to the issue of housing. While for some, the concept of affordable housing may mean monthly rent in the hundreds of dollars. One California city defines it as several thousand. While the local government seems matter-of-fact about higher incomes, a poll from last year suggests the higher incomes don't make up for the resulting quality of life. NTD's Daniel Hall reports. An annual salary of almost $200,000 may sound like a lot, but in California, those earnings qualify San Franciscans as low-income housing status. That could get locals a 420-square-foot studio apartment in the city for just over $1,800 per month. That's according to Dahlia, the city's affordable housing website. The broad definition of low income comes as housing prices in San Francisco are higher than ever. According to the California Association of Realtors, the median price for a single family home was just over $2 million in May. January 2015 was the last time the median price was just under $1 million. The price has doubled in the last seven years. Several other things have doubled as well. City officials reported that per capita income has doubled in the last 10 years, going from about $85,000 to $173,000 in 2021. Tax collection has doubled as well, sitting at $3.8 billion for 2021. But a poll from last year, along with census data, suggests that money might not be the solution to the problem. To get an idea of living in the Greater Bay Area, a 2021 poll from joint venture Silicon Valley asked residents about quality of life. Over three quarters of respondents said cost of housing and living were the main reasons they wanted to leave the area. Over half of respondents said both that the region has gotten worse in the last five years and that they were likely to leave the region. The 2022 census seems to confirm this, with San Francisco losing over 6% of its population, the most of any city in the United States. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. At Wimbledon today, Rafael Nadal withstood 11th-seeded Taylor Fritz and an abdomen injury to advance the semifinals. The second seed in Nadal lost two of the first three sets before rallying to win in five. The 22-time Grand Slam champion was often seen hunched over in pain, eventually taking an injury timeout. At less than 100%, Nadal's serve, normally clocked at 120 miles an hour, was down to around 100, and he was noticeably wincing on his follow-through. He used a number of drop shots, though, to foil Fritz, who preferred to play back more. The win for Nadal sets up a semi-final matchup with Nick Kyrgios, who advanced with a straight sets victory. In women's basketball, the wife of detained WNBA star Brittany Griner talked to President Biden, according to the White House. Biden told Sherelle Griner he's working to get her freedom as soon as possible. The conversation followed Brittany Griner's handwritten letter to the White House, which was delivered Monday. 
In the letter, Greiner expressed fear she might be in Russia forever and pleaded with the president not to forget about her and the other detainees. She also said freedom meant something different to her this year. The White House said in a statement, the president called Shirell to reassure her that he is working to secure Britney's release as soon as possible, as well as the release of Paul Whelan and other U.S. nationals who were wrongfully detained or held hostage in Russia and around the world. Greiner has been detained in Russia since February after local authorities say they found cannabis oil in her luggage at a Moscow airport. Her trial is expected to resume on July 7th. In baseball, New York Mets ace Max Scherzer made his first start in more than a month last night, looking as dominant as ever. Scherzer struck out 11 batters while allowing just two hits over six scoreless innings against the Cincinnati Reds. The 37-year-old who's won three Cy Young Awards hadn't pitched since mid-May because of an injured oblique. Yet he threw 79 pitches and hit 97 on the radar gun. The performance was for naught, though, as the Reds scored a run in the ninth off reliever Seth Lugo to win 1-0. In NFL news, the Cleveland Browns have traded quarterback Baker Mayfield to the Carolina Panthers for a conditional draft pick, according to a report on ESPN. The Browns will receive either a fourth or a fifth round pick in 2024, depending on how much Mayfield plays. Carolina will be on the hook for $4.85 million of Mayfield's salary. The Browns will pay Mayfield $10.5 million, and Mayfield himself agreed to forego the remainder of his scheduled $18.8 million salary to make the deal work. The Panthers already have Sam Darnold on their roster as last season's starter. Mayfield and Darnold were the first and third overall picks of the 2018 draft. Mayfield became expendable when Cleveland acquired Deshaun Watson from Houston for three first-round picks. They then signed him into a five-year, $230 million deal. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Russian forces shell Ukraine's Donetsk region. One of Russia's aims since the beginning was for Ukraine to hand the region to pro-Russia separatists. And is it truly the end for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson? Over 30 ministers and parliamentary aides quit today. We'll have more on how Johnson is responding after the break. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. Russian forces are shelling Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region. It's an effort to take more territory in the region as the five-month-old war enters a new phase. Here's more. Russian forces struck targets across Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region on Tuesday to prepare the path for an expected armored thrust to take more territory. A market in the city of Slovyansk was struck by Russian forces killing at least two people and injuring seven, according to officials. Smoke billowed from an auto supply shop and flames engulfed rows of market stalls. 
The Russian Defense Ministry says it does not target residential areas and added it had used what it called high-precision weapons to destroy command centers and artillery in Donetsk. The capture of the Ukrainian city of Lysychansk on Sunday means all of Luhansk region is now in Russian hands, fulfilling one of Moscow's main war goals. Now Russian forces are aiming to take full control of Donetsk, the other region in Donbass. Since the outset of the conflict, Russia has demanded that Ukraine hand both Luhansk and Donetsk to Moscow-backed separatists, who have declared their independence. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that despite Ukraine's withdrawal from Lysychansk, its troops continued to fight. The governor of Luhansk said Ukrainian forces, which retreated from Lysychansk at the weekend, took up new defensive lines in Donetsk. Both sides have suffered heavy casualties in the fight for Luhansk, particularly during the siege of the twin cities of Lysychansk and Sivrodonetsk. Both have been left wracked. And in Britain, the Prime Minister has defied calls to resign despite a fresh wave of ministerial resignations. Two high-ranking officials quit their cabinet positions following Johnson's controversial handling of sexual misconduct allegations against another former minister. This report comes from NTD's Malcolm Hudson. Prime Minister Boris Johnson faces arguably one of the biggest challenges to his leadership yet. Both Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid resigned from their cabinet positions on Tuesday, followed by a wave of other ministers and aides. Their resignations came just as Johnson was being forced into a humiliating apology over his handling of the sexual misconduct allegations against Chris Pincher, the former deputy chief whip. Opening Prime Minister's questions in the House of Commons, Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer read out the testimony of a man who accused Pincher of sexual assault, saying Johnson knew about the minister's behaviour. He knew the accused minister had previously committed predatory behaviour, but he promoted him to a position of power anyway. Why? Mr Speaker, as soon as I was made aware of the, the allegation that he has just read out, uh, Mr Speaker, and the complaint that was made, uh, he, lost, uh, his, um, he lost his status as a Conservative MP. And he is now the subject, uh, Mr Speaker, of uh, an independent investigation to the uh, Complaints and Grievances uh, panel. Pincher quit as Deputy Chief Whip last week following claims that he groped two men at the upmarket's Carlton Club. Number 10 initially claimed that Johnson had not been aware of the specific allegations against Pincher. But Johnson later admitted he knew about allegations against Pincher as far back as 2019, yet still appointed him as Deputy Chief Whip. Johnson acknowledged he should have sacked Pincher instead. Starmer continued. Here's Starmer! None of that explains why he promoted him in the first place. And we've heard it all before. We know who he really is. Before he was found out, he's reported to have said he's handsy. That's the problem. Pincher by name, pincher by nature. Johnson reiterated what he'd said before and attempted to redirect the topic to his successes, such as getting people off of welfare and back to work. But SNP Westminster leader Ian Blackford ridiculed Johnson. Prime Minister, you know, a few weeks ago I compared the Prime Minister to Monty Python's Black Knight. Actually, turns out I was wrong. 
He's actually the dead parrot. <laughs> whether, whether he knows it or not, he's now an ex-Prime Minister. <laughs> and it didn't stop there. Johnson also faced calls for his resignation from Conservative backbenchers. He responded. But frankly, Mr Speaker, the job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. And that's what I'm going to do. Ending Prime Minister's questions, former Health Secretary Sajid Javid gave a resignation statement to the House of Commons. He said that treading the tightrope between loyalty and integrity has become impossible in recent months. Javid recounted how during the Partygate saga he had been assured that there were no parties in Downing Street. And now this week again, we have reason to question the truth and integrity of what we've all been told. And at some point, we have to conclude that enough is enough. Directing his comments to cabinet ministers who chose to remain, Javid said he knows his decision was difficult, but that not doing something is also a decision. Ministers loyal to Johnson will need to reshuffle various government roles following over a dozen resignations. It's quite possible we'll have yet more resignations since some have quit midway through Wednesday. While Johnson has established a reputation for escaping controversy, it remains to be seen if Johnson will survive the coming weeks. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. Up next, thinking about a summer trip to Europe. Despite flight delays and cancellations and the sweltering summer heat, there's some good news in sight for Americans. We'll have the details after the break. If you're traveling to Europe, there's some good news that'll make those long waits at the airport a little less painful. The euro has not been this cheap for Americans since the early 2000s. NTD's Phil Zoe finds out what you can do with that extra buying power. If you're planning a trip to Italy, France, Switzerland, or other parts of Europe, Americans might be in luck. This is a lot cheaper than I expected it to be. Uh Anything from dinners, hotels, and tours in Europe are much cheaper for Americans paying in U.S. dollars. To exchange one euro, it costs only $1.02. In the recent past, it costs as much as $1.58 for one euro. The rate hasn't been this low since late 2002. When the dollar is strong, you can stretch to a type of travel that maybe you never tried before. Tim Leffa was bitten by the travel bug in his late 20s. Since then, he's been traveling nonstop for 20-plus years. I just got back yesterday. Actually, my last stop was in Malaga, Spain, in Andalusia before I flew back. Leffo says the savings from the exchange rate makes a big impact on his travels. You can imagine if you're on a two-week vacation and you're getting a $20 difference every night on a $100 hotel. That makes a big difference after a while. And that includes taxi rides, admission tickets, and food. Had dinner at a cafe by the beach, by the sea, and I got a, a glass of wine from a bottle, not in a box wine, but a glass of wine from a bottle and it was three euros. Good luck finding a glass of wine anywhere in the U.S. in a restaurant for three dollars. Sandra McLemore has been working in the travel industry since the 90s. She says it's a good time for Americans to try services that they were not able to afford before. Perhaps you have never turned left as you boarded the plane and you'd like to try fly in premium economy or business class or even first class. 
Maybe it's upgrading from a standard room to a suite or from an inward facing room to a to an ocean view. But some experts say even with the exchange rate advantage, try to skip out on the peak summer season if you can and save even more during the fall or spring. Phil Zoe, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.